you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. We're one step Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the June 1st, 2020 Shelter-in-Place Pride Month edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we visit Larry Kramer, have a flick pick for your lockdown streaming pleasure, look at an L.A. gay bar in the 1950s, and revisit a Gaytino report about one of our favorite Latinx comedians. But first, the honest tea. From the WashingtonBlade.com, May 27, 2020, reported by Joy Masters. Larry Kramer dies at 84. Noted LGBT author and playwright Larry Kramer died May 27th at 84 years old. Kramer died of pneumonia, according to his husband, David Webster. In March 1983, Kramer wrote in his famous essay, 1,112 and Counting, published in The Native, then a New York City gay publication, If this article doesn't scare the crap out of you, we're in real trouble. If this article doesn't rouse you to anger, fury, rage, and action, gay men may have no future on this earth. Our continued existence depends on just how angry you can get. Larry Kramer was a noted author and playwright who began his career at Columbia Pictures and United Artists. His screenplay for the 1969 film Women in Love earned an Academy Award nomination. Among his many accomplishments and awards, he was finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for his play The Destiny of Me in 1992 and a two-time recipient of the Obie Award. Even before AIDS, Kramer was known as a critic of his own community. His novel, Faggots, in 1978, depicted gay male relationships of the 1970s as hedonistic, destructive, and unaware. He co-founded the Gay Men's Health Crisis, GMHC, which has become the world's largest private organization assisting people living with AIDS, His highly acclaimed 1985 play, The Normal Heart, produced at Joseph Papp's Public Theater, reflected on the failings of a bureaucratic approach to combating an epidemic and honed his belief in the power of collective political provocation. He was known for his rage and brazen behavior, and New York City Mayor Ed Koch was among his favorite targets for his disregard of the emerging AIDS crisis. Kramer could be cantankerous, to say the least. Of that reputation, he told the Washington Blade, I am not bitter. I am angry. Anger is a wonderful motivator for me. Phil Wilson, a longtime HIV-AIDS advocate and founder and former executive director of the Black AIDS Institute, noted, That was an important lesson to learn about Larry. Prior to his elevating the art of anger, if you will, many of us were stuck in that best little boy or best little girl mode and feeling that the best way to maneuver the world was to not be seen. Because to be seen was to put yourself at risk and at danger, 
Larry basically led the way for us to maneuver the world in a different way. From Outsports.com, May 27, 2020, reported by Alex Reimer. LGBT athletes expressed outrage over George Floyd's death. Which one of us is next? Sports stars everywhere are expressing outrage over George Floyd's death, including some of the most notable LGBT names in athletics. It is important for our community to stand up for those victimized by deadly injustice. Cell phone video shows Floyd, a black Minnesota man, was pinned down by police and held in a chokehold until paramedics arrived. Even though he was screaming, he couldn't breathe. Police were responding to an alleged forgery in progress. Floyd died in police custody. All four officers at the scene have been fired from the Minneapolis Police Department. Protests broke out in the city, resulting in violent clashes with police, who threw smoke bombs and tear gas at the protesters. Many athletes of color, including LeBron James, have shared images of Floyd's beatdown beside photos of Colin Kaepernick kneeling. The former NFL quarterback remains unsigned after kneeling during the national anthem to protest police brutality during the 2016 season. The circumstances of Floyd's death are chillingly reminiscent of the Eric Garner case. The black New York City man was strangled by police on Staten Island in 2014 for the crime of allegedly selling loose cigarettes. His death prompted a surge of athletic activism, with James and others wearing shirts with the saying, I can't breathe. As LGBT people, we sympathize with the horrors of being subjected to deadly violence based on the crime of simply existing. In 2018, Advocates tracked at least 26 murders of transgender or gender nonconforming people in the United States. Nearly one in five hate crimes in the U.S. stems from anti-LGBT bias, according to the FBI. Five-time WNBA champion Rebecca Brunson shared her outrage, directing anger at the other officers as well, who stood and watched their colleague kill Floyd. From Twitter, I try very hard not to generalize my anger, but this hits different. It's hard not to generalize when you see what happened yesterday to George Floyd. Watching one officer kill a man while his brothers sit and watch doing nothing. It was inhumanely sickening. With hate crime violence hitting a 16-year high under President Donald Trump, it's imperative for all of us to speak out against racism and bigotry. The results of staying silent can be deadly, as gay former hockey player and advocate Brock McGillis posted on Twitter. All lives matter, people. Our lives do matter, which is why we don't have to say it. The lives of black people are taken for granted. They're killed at random traffic stops and for jogging. Police are called for watching birds in a park. We don't need to say it. They do. While always prevalent, it is impossible to ignore the obvious institutional racism at play in cities across the country. As police deployed tear gas against protesters demonstrating against Floyd's death, while standing idle when largely white protesters demonstrate against coronavirus restrictions. WNBA champion Rebecca Brunson retweeted a message from Memphis Grizzlies guard Tyus Jones, which simply says, This must stop. From Advocate.com, May 29, 2020, reported by Trudy Ring. Black trans man Tony McDade killed by police in Florida. Tony McDade a black transgender man was shot to death by a police officer May 27th in Tallahassee, Florida. McDade, 38, was accused of having fatally stabbed another man just minutes before his own death. McDade had posted a live video on Facebook saying he wanted revenge on a group of men who had beaten him the previous day. 
and he predicted a standoff with police. You killed me, he said in the live video. I'm going to kill you. I'm living suicidal right now. Another video showed a brutal attack on a man purported to be McDade, according to the paper. The name of the man who was stabbed has not been released. McDade was shot just outside an apartment complex where stories circulated among residents that he was unarmed. But Tallahassee Police Chief Lawrence Revel said McDade had pointed a gun at the officer. Witnesses said the officer was white. His name has not been publicly released either. Revel said there was nothing to indicate the shooting was racially motivated. A grand jury will review the matter, which is a routine practice. The officer has been placed on administrative leave pending the outcome of the grand jury investigation. The human rights campaign and the entire transgender and non-binary community demand accountability and answers for Tony's death. And countless violent deaths of trans people, black people, and disproportionately black transgender people. While these deaths are visible due to recordings and social media, we know far too many go completely ignored, added Tori Cooper, HRC Director of Community Engagement for the Transgender Justice Initiative, in a press release. Black people, LGBTQ people, and especially all LGBTQ people of color are at greater risk for violence every day in this country. This must end. Our hearts are heavy as we mourn with Tony's family and friends. From LGBTQNation.com, May 29, 2020, reported by Alex Bollinger. Gay widower wins historic victory for Social Security benefits in federal court. A federal judicial magistrate ruled that a widower is entitled to survivor benefits after the death of his husband of 43 years, which the Social Security Administration had denied him because they were not legally married long enough. U.S. District Court for the District of Arizona Magistrate Judge Bruce McDonald ruled that Michael Eli qualified for survivor benefits following the death of his husband, James A. Taylor, even though they were only legally married for six months. It is gratifying to have the court today recognize the 43 years of love and commitment that my late husband and I shared, rather than looking only at the date on a marriage certificate that we were denied for most of our lives, Eli said in a statement. Eli and Taylor have been in a relationship since 1971. Eli applied for Social Security survivor benefits, which are based on a deceased person's income, but given to their spouse if the spouse outlives them. But the Social Security Administration denied him the benefits because survivors must have been married to their deceased spouses for at least nine months. Despite Eli and Taylor's 43-year relationship, they were not legally married long enough. We got married as soon as the law permitted, Eli said. My husband paid into Social Security with every paycheck, and I know he can rest easier now knowing that I, at last, will start receiving the same benefits as other widowers. In court, the Social Security Administration argued that it was applying the law neutrally and had not discriminated based on sexual orientation. McDonald disagreed. Because the duration of marriage requirement is based on an unconstitutional Arizona law, it cannot withstand scrutiny at any level, he wrote in his decision. And that's The Honest Tea. Speaking at the 30th anniversary of AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power or ACT UP in March of 2007, Larry Kramer was not optimistic. In the midst of the George H.W. Bush administration, LGBT activists were fighting Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and the Defense of Marriage Act was still the law of the land. We seem to have come full circle more than a decade later as a list of astonishing victories are threatened. It happened fast. 
Almost every man I was friendly with died. Many of us will always have memories like this that we can never escape. Out of this came ACT UP. We grew to have chapters and affinity groups and spin-offs and affiliations all over the world. Hundreds of men and women once met weekly in New York City alone. Every single treatment against HIV is out there because of activists who forced these drugs out of the system, out of the labs, out of the pharmaceutical companies, out of the government, into the world. It is an achievement unlike any other in the history of the world. All gay men and women must let ourselves feel colossally proud of such an achievement. <laughs> Hundreds of millions of people will be healthier because of us. Would that they would or could be grateful to us for saving their lives. We had regular demonstrations, die-ins we call them, at the Food and Drug Administration, in the National Institutes of Health, at City Halls, at the White House, in the Halls of Congress, at government buildings everywhere, starting with our first demonstration on Wall Street, where crowds of us lay flat on the ground with our arms crossed over our chest or holding cardboard tombstones until the cops had to cart us away by the vans full. A lot of us got arrested a lot of times. A lot of us. We kept our lawyers members busy. It actually was a wonderful feeling being locked up behind bars and cells with the brothers and sisters you have fought with side by side for what you fervently believe in. Slowly we were noticed and even more slowly we were listened to. How could a population of gay people call us the survivors or the descendants of those who did all this be so relatively useless now? Maybe useless is too harsh, ineffectual, invisible. No, useless is not too harsh. Oh, let us just call ourselves underutilized. The old act up is no longer useful enough. There are not enough of us, few people go to meetings, our chapters have evaporated. Our voice has dimmed in its volume and its luster. Our protests are no longer heard. We must be heard. We must be. We are not crumbs. We should not accept crumbs. We must not accept crumbs. They don't want us here. When are we going to face up to this? We are discriminated against at every turn. Gays are equal to nothing good or acceptable in this country. It is criminal how they treat us. We get further and further from progress and equality with each passing year. This is not just about gay marriage. Political candidates only talk about gay marriage making nicey-nice maybes. And we are not demanding that they talk about the kind of equality I am talking about. Gay marriage has become a useful red herring for them to pretend they are talking about gays when they are not. For some reason, our movement has confined its feeble demands to marriage. Well, my lover and I don't want to get married just yet. 
but we sure want to be equal. I wish I could make all gay people everywhere accept this one fact that I know to be an undisputed truth. We are hated. Haven't enough of us died for all of us to believe this? 70 million cases of HIV were all brewed in a cauldron of hate. This is not meant as finger pointing or blame. It just is. That was only an excerpt of a speech that ran for more than an hour. Last week, Larry Kramer passed away at the age of 84. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Larry Kramer, pioneer AIDS activist, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Larry Kramer was born in Connecticut in 1935. He earned his degree from Yale and became a writer in the entertainment industry. Through his later writings, he sounded the alarm about the AIDS epidemic. He bluntly warned gays against a life of excess and wrote scathing criticism of the government's inaction to the crisis. In 1982, Kramer helped form a group called the Gay Men's Health Crisis to help combat the AIDS epidemic. He also helped form the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, known as ACT UP. Through its demonstrations, ACT UP garnered widespread media coverage, influencing drug companies to ramp up the development of new AIDS treatments. Kramer discovered he himself was HIV positive in 1988. He responded by writing a play based loosely on his life journey. That journey reveals a man with a dogged determination to fight AIDS with political change. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Tom Miller. Hello, I'm Armistead Maupin, author of Tales of the City, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. With the launch of Pride Month and shutdown still in place for many of us, we want to recommend an award-winning gay film from 2017 for your streaming queue. Steve Pride reports. God's Own Country is a stunning gay love story of both brutality and tenderness set in the rustic hills of West Yorkshire in the UK. I'm Francis Lee and I am the writer and director of God's Own Country. My name is Alex Carano and I'm an actor. I'm one of the two leads in God's Own Country. God's Own Country is primarily about Johnny Saxby, who is a Yorkshire sheep farmer, and he is running the farm on his own because his father's had a stroke and his grandma's quite old. All his friends have moved away to university or college or got jobs in towns, so he's very isolated, very lonely. He's shut down emotionally to be able to continue the work and keep the farm going. It comes to spring and all the sheep are going to give birth to their lambs, and he can't do it on his own, so his father employs a Romanian migrant worker who's in the UK looking for work to come and help him, and it becomes about their relationship. What inspired this? The starting point for the film was the landscape, really. So I grew up on the hills in Yorkshire. I left when I was 20. I escaped to London to train as an actor, but I could never get that landscape out of my head. It felt to have totally informed who I was emotionally and physically. And so when I was thinking about stopping acting and making film, it just felt like a place that I had to investigate, that I had to explore, and also to represent those people that I knew so well from that area. 
I've only been making film for about five years. I got to a certain point in my career as an actor where I was very dissatisfied. I'd fallen out of love with it years before. I wasn't doing work that I felt was challenging. I always wanted to tell stories, and I had always seen the world visually. I'd been an obsessive stills photographer, but I'd never been confident enough to actually say that or to sit down and write anything. And I got to a certain age and thought, I'm going to have to do something. So I gave up acting. I got a job in a junkyard and started to write. And I wrote three short films and self-financed those by the job in the junkyard. And while I was doing that, I had this idea. I was exploring this idea of landscape, as I said, and the people who live on this hillside that I know so well. And so I wrote God's Own Country on spec. I just sat down and wrote it. And I just wanted to show the world a little bit of how I see my world. Alec, when you first read the script, what connected with you? Why did you want to do this movie? It sounds like a lot of work. I think it was one of the most detailed scripts that I've ever read. Every single glimpse and every single gesture that you can see in the film, it was written in the script. That made me really connect with the characters and with the story. And it's a very beautiful and powerful story. Of course, after I read the script, I really wanted to meet Francis, and I got a chance when he came to Bucharest to audition to see 14 or 13 Romanian actors. And we worked together for half an hour or 45 minutes, and I really understood that he knew what he wants from this story and from this film. How did you prepare them for what was not just acting, but some very difficult and specific farm work? I worked with both Josh and Alec, who played the leads in the film, for about three months before the shoot. And we worked primarily on the characters in that period. We started from the moment they were born until the moment we meet them in the film. And we worked through everything, not just on a timeline, but also in terms of relationships, family relationships, friends. Every single little detail about these men we discovered and we learnt and we worked on right down to if they had sugar in their tea, what socks they preferred, everything. So by the time we got to the actual shoot and Alec and Josh came to the set, they were totally immersed in their characters. So then for two weeks before we started the shoot, I sent them to work on farms because I knew I never wanted a stunt double or a hand double. I never wanted to be pulled out of this film with fakery. So... Both actors went and worked on two separate farms and they worked long, solid shifts. And they would start early in the morning and they would end their shift late at night and they learnt to do everything. They learnt how to birth lambs, they learnt how to build walls. I mean, they literally learnt everything. It was really important to me that they embodied these characters both physically and emotionally. And there's such a impact that working that way has on somebody physically. They got cold, they got wet, they got miserable, and these were all great things for me because that's what the characters were going through. Um, So again, by the time it came to shooting the scenes when they had to do the farm stuff, both of them were totally proficient as if they'd been doing it their whole entire lives. So everything you see in the film is totally for real. You shot this chronologically too. Explain Mm -hmm. why. The script very much felt like each scene acted like building blocks in this relationship. 
I love actors and I will do anything I can to support them, to get the very best out of them and to facilitate their work. And so it felt really important to me that if I could shoot chronologically, that would really help the development of their relationship. It also added this extra benefit. The way in which the film is structured, Alex's character, Georgi, isn't there at the beginning of the film. So I could keep them apart. And the, as people, Josh and Alec wouldn't get to know each other very well. So they wouldn't have developed that comfortable kind of relationship. And for me, that was going to translate on screen. So the first time they meet on screen, not completely, but it was almost the first time they kind of had worked together. So there was that extra layer of kind of tension or nervousness that I thought would just add a little bit of extra something in the scene. Once the relationship between the two boys develops... I moved them both into the same house and they built this beautiful, lovely, caring friendship between them. And again, that translated onto screen. So anything I could do to enable that, to make it feel richer and deeper, I did. As an actor, did filming in this way make it easier or more difficult? No, it's a lot easier. I mean, you can't find this kind of work with many directors. And it was incredible to work on this film. I mean, all the process that we had and all the things that we had to do on working on farms and developing our characters from scratch and discussing about them and knowing their lives from the point they were born until we see them on screen. I mean, this is the way I want to work and this is the way I love to work. And Francis did an amazing job in creating this environment and letting these things happen. At one point in the film, you put your arm inside a cow and later you birth a sheep. Yeah. At least now, though, you have something to fall back on if this acting thing doesn't work out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think Alec will be fine in the acting world. I'm hoping and I know he isn't going to need anything to fall back on. God's Own Country is being called the UK Brokeback Mountain. I'm really super flattered by the Brokeback comparisons. I think it's a masterpiece in storytelling, and Ang Lee is an incredible storyteller, and those are phenomenal performances at the heart of it. I think this film is different, and I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think Brokeback is, is about sexuality. It's about society's attitude towards sexuality at that very specific time, whereas I do think this film is more about love and about the human condition, which feels slightly more universal, maybe. This has been a conversation with writer-director Francis Lee and actor Alex Sakharano about their film, God's Own Country. This is Deep Pride. Thanks for listening. God's Own Country has a 98% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and is streaming free on Amazon Prime and can be rented on iTunes, Vudu, and YouTube. In Gay Bar, the fabulous true story of a daring woman and her boys in the 1950s, Will Fellows reworks and places in historical perspective the story first penned by Gay Bar owner Helen H. Branson. Steve Pride has the story. From a 21st century perspective, gay bar owner Helen Branson wasn't particularly progressive. The 60-something former palm reader barred the obvious homosexual from the small tavern she opened in 1952 on a seedy stretch of L.A.'s Melrose Avenue. Helen strongly preferred patrons who could pass for straight and did not allow 
sexual touching. But by melding this new edition of Branson's 1957 memoir, Gay Bar, with a study of 1950s America, historian Will Fellows illuminates how ahead of her time Helen Branson really was. Several years after Helen opened this bar in 52, she decided, in the midst of probably the most anti-homosexual period of the 1950s, the, the very midsection of that decade, that she had something to say about homosexual people. She knew them well. She knew that the common perception of homosexuals was way off base, and she wanted to add her voice to a very small chorus of people who were speaking out in support of gay people. And so she wrote this little book, and it was published in 1957 by a small press in San Francisco called Pangraphic Press. It was a press that was very closely associated with the Mattachine Society. In 1957, just having the word gay in the book title was daring. And as for what was inside the book... Of course, Helen talks about her experiences running the bar, what motivated her to do it, some of her experiences in dealing with law enforcement and the Alcoholic Beverage Control Department and just kind of local neighborhood hazards. And she also talks about the circumstances of gay people, gay men in particular, because Helen's Bar was a bar for homosexual men. That was very common in that period. There were bars, certainly, that were mixed, both lesbians and gay men, but it was very common to have segregated bars. And Helen was just interested in a gay male clientele. And Helen was especially accommodating of gay men for whom presenting as what you might call sort of respectable, average guy homosexuals was important. And again, this was also very common. This was a reflection of the general prevailing mood and sensibility in the gay community at that time that those who were too obvious, those who were too swish, too flamboyant, too out there, posed a real problem for lots of gay people because the common view was in order to win acceptance in American society, we need to present ourselves as sort of everyday people who are no different from anybody else except for the fact that we're attracted in our love and in our sexual attraction to those of our own sex. So when you look at, for example, the Mattachine Review or One magazine from that time period or The Ladder, which was a lesbian publication published in San Francisco, the letters and articles in those magazines over and over reiterate the importance of not trampling on or offending too greatly the sort of gender standards for the 1950s. I asked fellows to take us there, to Helen's Bar on a typical night. Helen's Bar at 5124 Melrose was in an old commercial building, small. It was a brick building that was divided down the middle. Helen's fairly narrow, small bar occupied one side, and a sort of greasy spoon cafe occupied the other side. Prior to her ownership of it, it was what she calls a bucket of blood. It was a very rowdy bar in which fistfights that spilled out onto the parking lots were very common, and then the guys would go back in for drinks to make up and stage their next fistfight, I guess. Obviously not a gay bar. 
So when Helen took it over, she says that, you know, many in the neighborhood welcomed the change from that more rowdy, rambunctious crowd. There was a pool table. There was a jukebox. There was a payphone, a cigarette machine, I believe, a small partitioned-off space at the back for a restroom, and then all along one side was an old bar with a back bar. I would guess it was probably built maybe in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And one thing that was very distinctive about Helen's bar was that she closely monitored those who could be in her space. So she had what she called a warm glass routine. If someone arrived at the bar and came up and asked for a drink, she served only bottled beer and bottled soft drinks. It was not a full-range bar. And if she didn't know this person or wasn't confident that she knew who this person was and what they were about, she would serve them their beverage in an unchilled glass, and she would reach behind to the back bar rather than into the chiller box and take a glass to serve their beverage in. All of her regular boys knew that this was a sign that they were to have no contact with this person until she gave some sort of an all-clear signal. And the reason, as Helen describes it, for this screening device was that it was a way of basically marginalizing potentially unsafe intruders into the bar. For example, for all she or her boys knew, someone that she didn't know might be a police department vice squad officer who might entrap or entice someone into some compromising situation that could lead to their arrest and their basically ending up with a charge of sexual offender for life, basically, and obviously be a career and potentially life-destroying move. And after working on this new edition of Gay Bar, what does Will Fellows really think of Helen Branson? High visibility, outspoken, straight allies in many cases are not especially numerous today, although certainly they are more so than they were 50 or 60 years ago. But to imagine at a time when Joe McCarthy was still very much alive, all of the homosexual and communist witch hunt activity, the country was very much in the thick of that. The year that Helen started writing the book, 1955, was probably the most intensely anti-homosexual year of the decade. It was the year of the Boise-Idaho sex scandal. Sioux City, Iowa had a big one that Neil Miller did a book on a number of years ago called Sex Crime Panic. There were just things going on all over the country that were just treating homosexuals as this minority group that there was no way to accommodate in American life. And here's Helen Branson deciding, I have something to say about this, and I'm willing to put my message out there with my name attached to it. I think that's inspiring. In 1959, the California Supreme Court overruled the state legislature to reiterate that homosexuals had a right to gather. But unfortunately, that same year, Helen's bar went out of business when the building that housed it was sold and slated for demolition. The reissue of Helen's memoir, Gay Bar, with additional content from historian Will Fellows, is from the University of Wisconsin Press. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Strangers in the night, exchanging glances, wandering in the night. What were the chances we'd be sharing love? Before the night was through 
something in your eyes. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Larry Kramer acts up again, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. On March 24, 1987, 250 AIDS activists stormed Wall Street, protesting the high price of antiviral drugs and the Reagan administration's failure to address the AIDS crisis. They laid down in the intersection of Wall Street and Broadway, blocking traffic. Seventeen were arrested. The protest was the first of many actions led by the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, otherwise known as ACT UP. Their slogan was, Silence Equals Death. In one of the group's early protests, it covered Jesse Helms' home in a giant condom. ACT UP marked its 20th anniversary in March 2007 with hundreds of protesters heading to Wall Street to demand a single-payer health care system and drug price controls. Among the protesters was none other than Larry Kramer, who co-founded ACT UP in 1987. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and is recorded here in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and is read by volunteers like me. I'm Dan Roberts. Hi, this is Sam Harris, singer, actor, author, husband, dad. I'm so many things, I'm about to explode. Listen to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Sit back and relax. It's time for a Gaytina report on one of our favorite Latinx comedians, Sandra Voles. <laughs> Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Gaytino Report. Voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero. Or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. Tonight's guest, a pistol. Sandra Valls is a stand-up comic you may have caught on Showtime's The Latin Divas of Comedy, Nickelodeon's Nick Mom Night Out, or One Night Stand Up on Logo or really at any top comedy club anywhere in the country. An actor, singer, and writer that plays a mean piano. Sandra is also a self-proclaimed badass. I suspect that may be her proudest accomplishment. I'm a little scared, but hello, Sandra. Dan, give, I can't roll my R's. Really? Give, but I'm good with my tongue anyway. So oh, my can, God. Give, can we be blue in this program? Can we... How blue do you want to get? I don't know. Why am I thinking of that famous Bette Davis quote from All About Eve? Fasten your seatbelts. It's, it's going to be, be a bumpy, a bumpy ride. night. Yeah, <laughs> bumpy yeah. night or bumpy ride? Whatever you want. Whatever bumps. But not too blue. <laughs> not too blue, yes. Let me ask you, does being a badass take a lot of work or does it come like really naturally to you? That's just who I am. Anyone who's an activist, anyone who stands up for their rights, anyone who's like, no, you're not going to suppress me or make me shrink. I think they're a badass. You know what? It's the same like diva. Diva's not a bad thing. It mm -mm. just means you want things done well and professionally. And if that makes you a diva, then let's all salute divas. I salute the divas. The badass divas. <laughs> you have a great comedy career going in for a good many years now, but you came to it by accident, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I was a musician. I still am. And I'm you know, a singer. I was in a band. This was in Boston years ago. And I was seeing somebody, and all her tribe of people were like, you're just so funny. And, of course, I'm funny. I'm the class clown, whatever. But I'm like, no, I'm a lead singer. I'm an actor. No, you're so funny. You should be a comic. And I'm like, mm, whatever. So she signs me up for comedy classes at a local college, like adult comedy classes. And in the process, we were having issues. And so we were going to couples therapy, of course, because we're lesbians. <laughs> in the middle of it all, she's like, I'm done. 
this is not working. Then she goes, well, what about the comedy class? Are you still going? I said, I don't want to go. And Who wants to laugh? I was just dumped. And so then my best friend Chris was like, girl, you should go to make friends. She took all your friends. <laughs> lesbians choose sides. Really? I didn't do anything. Yeah, all her friends chose her. And then I ended up with like only two people. I'm like, gee. I went to make friends. And you did. And I made a lot of friends. And I and made a career out of it. You started the class because everyone said, you're so funny. You're so funny. Were you a funny kid growing up in Laredo, Texas? I mean, you got to be something in Laredo, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was. I was funny. I really loved making my parents laugh. My dad's a great storyteller, and he would make other people laugh. And I was just silly. And I always felt different. It's so cliche for a lesbian, a gay child to be like, oh, I feel different. But I did feel different. And so my icebreaker or my way of fitting in was to make people laugh. I loved to laugh, and so I made other people laugh. I was silly. I talked way too much. I was most humorous in high school, and I was always voted funny, funny, funny. But I never thought of it as a career. Mm -hmm. I thought, I'll just be a comedic actor. Do you find yourself limited to LGBTQ nights at comedy clubs or Latino night at comedy clubs? Do you find yourself limited to that genre? Well, I don't limit myself. They limit you. People limit you. Promoters limit you. They like boxes. They really love, like, Latino night, like you said, or LGBTQ night or women's night or something like that. I get in where I fit in. So for me, you know... I don't feel limited. Funny is funny. The audiences that laugh the loudest at different kind of jokes are straight people. And I, for me, I love LGBTQ rooms because I don't have to explain the joke. Sure. I can just sit and talk about our idiosyncrasies and or Latinos. I could Spanglish as much as I want. When I have straight audiences who aren't Latino, <laughs> it's a different take on the joke because we mm -hmm. have to explain it or they find it. Like, for example, I have this one joke that I say. For the Mexican, a sheet is like the cloak of invisibility. Like, you know, we put sheets on things. We don't have storage units. We have, like, sabanas. Like, we, we just cover it up with a sheet, and it doesn't exist. Well, for Latinos, we laugh in a different, familiar way. But for non-Latinos, they crack up completely differently. So I don't limit myself. However, if your niche is the LGBTQ community or women or Latinos, yeah, you go with that. Is sure. that who's responding to you? Yeah, of course. And little by little, you become universal. And the laughs are different. In my solo show, Gay Tino, it's very different if I have a heavily Latino audience mm -hmm. or heavily gay. Or when I did it at the Kirk Douglas, mostly older white folk, mm -hmm. the laughs are different. It doesn't mean you change your act or change the things, but it is a different energy. It's a different energy. The energy is different. When I'm among my LGBTQ people... It is a validation of who we are. It is a pride thing like, now let's get out there and kick some ass and still stand proud in who we are. So that is how I basically end my show. And, or they feel like, yay, somebody gets me, which is awesome. When I do straight crowds, it's an educational thing. Like, here's how gay people are. Here's how I am. Or here's what I feel gay and straight have funny about them. And so they leave a little bit changed, hopefully, like, oh, I never knew that about the LGBT community. So it's kind of the healing profession that I'm in. I believe that comedians are healers. Laughter heals. I think it's a release. I think it's so important to laugh and laugh at ourselves and with ourselves. If I can add a little bit of levity to your day and also have a message while you're laughing, insert a message of encouragement, of enlightenment, of empowerment, 
then I did my job. I think that's a beautiful thing. And we don't always start out that way. We start out as comics. I just want to be funny, whatever. And, and I'll just say things. And, and you find your voice. And as we get older, <laughs> as you and I both know, we mature. Crap starts happening to us in our life. And then as a comic, you are a social commentator. And so you start to observe what makes me happy, what makes me feel good. I no longer want to feel dramatic and like crappy you know I want to feel good and and grow and so a lot of things have happened in the world (laughs) and in our own lives that I feel a responsibility with that microphone I feel a responsibility to empower people and to make them feel good and to heal their spirit when you laugh and when you can look at your life sort of outside of yourself and try to make it better or try to not get so caught up in your darkness, then I did some spiritual healing. This is Dan Guerrero with the Gaytino Report, and I'm talking to funny lady Sandra Valls. When somebody asks me, what's your comedy about? I say my life, and they're like, is it mostly gay? Well, I'm a Mexican gay person, so I guess, I don't know. I mean, it's things that I find funny, including my girlfriend or my ex-relationship where we had kids, so I talked a lot about kids. I find them really crazy. So I talked about that. Universal theme. Well, whatever you're living, if you're commenting on your own life, that's what it is. And so I just feel, not everyone feels this, I feel I have a responsibility in that microphone, especially as I get older, to at least leave them a little happier than they were before. And if I made you laugh, I did my job. And I feel as a Latino, we also have a responsibility to get our stories out there, to empower. That is responsibility. Yes. Again, I don't think we have enough positive and inclusive representation in our LGBTQ community or Latino or women. (laughs) You know, so I come out like three times or ageism even. I'm 52. And people are like, why do you go around saying you're because it's empowering. People feel that people in their 50s have to look or act a certain way. Look at me. I don't think I look whatever 50 is or act or feel. Well, I feel. And last night I stayed out too late. So, yeah. I can't party anymore like I used to. But it's important to say we each can create our own life. We can create whatever we want out of ourselves. And you can't tell me who I am. And it's been a battle, and you know this, to be a strong, powerful gay person, Latina, woman. It's a challenge, unfortunately. You know, when I first moved to L.A. and I was talking about being Mexican, somebody actually said, Don't tell people that you're Mexican, because I'm very pale. Mm -hmm. No, no, don't say that, because you know. I was like, I know, what do you mean? And don't say you're gay. This was in 2001. Yeah. So that made me want to say it more. (laughs) That I'm Mexican and gay. Also, you're a priestess. Tell me about that. I'm an Ifa priestess. It's a nature-based African religion. The only thing you can compare it to is Native American religion, but it's vastly different. It deals with energies in the world, which some people call deities. So, for example, Yemaya, Oshun, Shango, and these are all parts of ourselves, but these are all energies in the world. The Oshun is the energy of love and unconditional love and abundance and joy, and Yemaya is the mother and the rebirth energy, and she's found in the ocean, and Oshun's found in a river, and that kind of thing. So it's very intricate to get into. It's Orisha worship. Orisha, which means the energies of the world. Uh, So anyway, I went through a uh, transformation, a spiritual cleansing, a year of white where I couldn't touch or hug anyone and 
couldn't wear any other colors and anything. But it was life-changing because I'm very intuitive. I'm sort of psychic. And I have now embraced that I'm a healer. We all are. But I didn't want to embrace that. I got a message when I was praying one day, and it said, take your place at the table. Toma tu lugar. What is that? What do you mean? No, it's a lot of responsibility. But a spiritual warrior is not for the weak and faint of heart. And it's a calling that, oh, it's annoying. <laughs> it's really hard. But I believe that we're all here on earth for a reason and a mission. And when you step into that, and I just happen to be a comedian. I mean, you could be a spiritual warrior and be a mother. And I believe they all are, <laughs> and they should be, mm -hmm. or a bus driver or whatever. But how I'm doing it, how you're healing the world, how I am, is with my comedy, with my message. And so my comedy changed a little, actually a lot. I still think funny is funny. I still, I can still bitch about the damn mockingbird that won't shut up because I can't sleep all night or all morning. I could still be that. I'm a human. But there is a, everything's going to be okay because I say it so. You create your own reality. You create your own life. And you can choose to look at the crap in life or look at the miracles in life. And every day is that choice. You know this. You wake up some days like, oh, there's nothing I could choose that's, ugh. And then you go, okay, I'm grateful for. The other day I ate too much and I felt like crap. But I went, you know what? Thank you so much that I have enough food that I ate too much, actually. There was a time in my life where I didn't eat enough because I was struggling, you know, that I can walk, that I have a bed, that I have water, just little things like that that we take for granted. But when you count your blessings, and I'm not saying that I always have the best attitude because I really don't, but I struggle and I really challenge myself to see the good in people. I love this quote that says, don't treat people as bad as they are. Treat them as good as you are. And this other quote says, you want to be a badass? Be kind to everyone, dot, 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 everyone. That was, <laughs> I was like, oh. So often we want to be encompassed by darkness and this one and oh. Mm -mm. It sounds corny when they say choose to be happy, but it's really true and choose to be grateful. I go to Gelson's a block from where I live and I see the produce and I go, oh my God, there are places in this country they would drop dead if they saw that. They don't have a scrap, and we don't think anything of it. Nine kinds of apples, 20 kinds of grapes. We have to be grateful. We have so much, and it's harder today to be grateful because there's so much evil going on, but you really can't get buried in that. I have friends who are literally immobilized. You know, they are by what's going on, and that's the last thing we need to do. I believe there's more good people in the world than bad people. And I don't even believe there's bad people. They're just lost and broken. I believe that good well, people should rise up in the multitudes. Your friends can slowly rise up and change the world with your positive energy. And I know some people listening might be like, oh, that one. She sounds all hoity-toity, Oprah, Von Sant, whatever. No, I'm not saying that. And I'm not invalidating anyone who's going through a tough-ass time that's just really hard and F everyone. I totally get that. I've been there. But it is difficult. What you say, I totally agree with. But, you know, the Women's March, we all went out there. Look at that. No one gave a rat's ass. What did, did it do? Did no one give a rat's ass? I don't know. Did things change? I think people change on a fundamental, personal level. It might not have changed a bill right away or government. But in Buddhism, we say, 
one human revolution in one person can transform the world. One person. I agree. Because now you come and change him and you change her and you smile at this one. It's a ripple effect. Then they might treat their partners better or their coworkers better. And slowly but surely, you spread goodness. So, yes, these women did change each other. I did feel more empowered to go out and keep changing the audience, keep healing the audiences, keep making them understand that there's good in the world. I agree. Before you go, how about tell us your website? WeLoveSandra.com. And you know what? We do. Thank you. <laughs> gracias, Sandra. Thanks for being here today. And gracias, listeners. I'm Dan Guerrero, and I've been talking with singer, funny lady, high priestess, and badass, Sandra Valls. Thanks for tuning in to The Gaytino Report. Until next time, ten orgullo. Be proud. Well, that's the end of our show. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. You can also listen to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Stitcher, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. We close with another brilliant song from our friend, Randy Rainbow. Good night and stay well. A global pandemic. Sounds like some fictional Steven Soderbergh bullshit from 2011, right? Believe it or not, it's a real thing. People are suffering. Millions are out of work. The economy has evaporated. And worst of all, I haven't had a haircut in more than two months. So how does an unprepared reality TV host pretending to be the president deal with such an unprecedented crisis? I can tell you in one word. This was all Obama. Distraction. Distraction. This was all Biden. Distraction. 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 And we caught them. Distraction. La, 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 la. La, 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 la. How he tries to occupy your mind to perplex you. Hillary Clinton to win. So many people fighting for their lives or scared to lose their jobs and stuck inside their houses. Thousands of people dying on your watch and who is it you're thinking of? Obama? Obama! Obama! That's the enemy of the people. Distraction! Obama! Obama! It is a disgrace. Distraction! We've done more testing than all of the countries in the world. Anyone who wants can get a test, he shouts. A proper test, a perfect test. Where the hell are all these perfect tests, he touts. There's only one thing on his freaking mind. Sleepy Joe Biden. Election! Election! I'm getting really good poll numbers. Distraction! Deception! Deception! Over 10 million tests. They've never gotten over losing to me. We hope that you might lead us with some dignity and tact. <laughs> we thought you'd somehow grow from this, but girl, you're petty. Confusion, digression, delusion, obsession. Make America great again, right? Recession, election, inaction, infection, Nancy Pelosi's a disaster. Obamagate. Hydroxychloroquine. Maybe that's a question you should ask China. He tries his best to baffle us.
everybody disagreed when I did that. Disgusting. Look, there were a number of questions raised by the actions of the Obama administration. Destruction. This was all Obama. So many people. It is a disgrace what's happened. Destruction! Obamagate. Hey.